Uh, turn to Habakkuk if you got a phone, however you do it. Go to Habakkuk. It is 35th book from the front of the Bible. It is the fourth book, I think, from the New Testament. So it's tucked in there. Uh, I know we got all the Christmas stuff, and we're going to do Christmas. We're going to begin that season next week, sermon-wise, but we're already starting to ease into it. So this will be the last one of the series we've been working through. Uh, for at least Christmas season, and then we'll jump back into it at the start of next year and keep going. So just to catch you back up really quick where we've been, um, in the beginning was God before all things, and he created all things, including Adam and Eve, uh, the first man and woman. They chose a life of sin and rebellion instead of obedience to God, and as a result, death entered the world. Um, now, we've been talking about this for a very long time, but the cool part is it's in your Bible. So you can go back and read it for yourself. But when sin and death entered the world, at the same time, God made a promise to Eve, to the woman, that a child, a, a uh, person from her own body, a child, would deliver her, would deliver uh, that or destroy that sin, the work of that sin, and restore um, creation. So throughout all of our reading in the Bible and our focuses in the Bible as we move through, we're looking and following for that person. So down through the ages, uh, we follow mankind. This this guy had this guy had this guy. Things go from bad to worse and we get the flood. God delivers uh, Noah and his family through the flood and carries that seed, that promise, through the flood. On the other side of the flood, the descendants continue down till God focuses on Abraham. Uh, one particular individual who God will pass that seed through. And Abraham uh, has children. Isaac uh, becomes uh, a descendant of Abraham. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob becomes Israel, right? Name changed to Israel. And he has 12 children. Those 12 children become the 12 tribes of Israel. And God's focus begins to work through those people. All of that is in the first book of the Bible. It's a lot that happens in the first book. And then from that point forward, we're following this family and the things that God is doing through this family as it grows into a nation. And you can go back and read it in your own time. But God uh, delivers them from bondage repeatedly, uh, gave, gave, brought them out of Egypt by the hand of Moses, gave them his laws and his word, and then gave them a land that was their own, that was to be theirs, where they were supposed to worship him and love him there. Uh, when they went into that land, instead of doing that immediately, they began to embrace the beliefs of that land as well as their, quote, love for God. So God raises up these judges, these people, these these warriors sometimes, and these uh, political leaders at the same time. They come up and they begin to rescue the people of Israel from their enemies and from oppression and from sin but they turn around and they go back as soon as times are good. And this cycle continues. Then they ask for a king. And then God provides them a king. Actually provides kings. And then these kings, plural, go from bad to worse. Uh, the nation splits. There's a civil war and the nation splits. And the larger of the 12 tribes, 10 of them, in the north are called Israel. And the two tribes remaining, Judah and Benjamin, are called Judah, and they're in the south. The kingdom in the north is called Samaria, or capital in the north is Samaria. The capital in the south is still Jerusalem. Um, and we've looked at all of that. The only other thing we need to add into what we're talking about is God brings these prophets 
that speak to the kings and that speak the word of God to the kings and speak to the people. And they rarely have good news. Uh, if they did have good news, is laced in the hope that you will repent. There is good news, but if you will repent. So all of the prophets are dealing with some form of you need to repent. Um, and we've looked at several different prophets. So today we're at another one. We'll look at a few more after Christmas, uh, and then we'll be in the New Testament. So this guy here, Habakkuk, let's zoom in on him. So title this week, How, Why, When, Lord. Maybe those are things you've asked. Greatest challenge words to faith, I think, are when, how, why, if we dwell on them too long, this progression begins and we start to go from listening to God to wondering if God's listening to us. And then we start wondering if, uh, if he even cares to listen. And then we start wondering if he can listen at all. And then we start wondering, well, does he even have ears? Could he hear if I was saying anything? Uh, then we think, does he see? Does he see me? Does he see him on my knees? Does, does he see anything? Is he actually there in the first place? And before you know it, you're in, in that spot. You know what I mean? And it leads us to one of three places. Maybe, maybe you guys have been here before. I don't know. But it leads you to either frustrated patience. Like, what else am I going to do? Where else am I going to go? Peter said that once. Where else, am, where else are we going to go? Uh, or repentance. Forgive my doubt, Lord. I don't have the answers, but I trust you. I'll wait. Be patient. I'll worship you, and I'll wait. Forgive my doubt. Or abandonment. You know what? We're done here. I don't believe it in the first place. I'm not even sure I ever believed it. And, and you walk away. So today we're looking at Habakkuk, and you're going to see where he lands on those three. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17. It says, though, and we're starting in the end here, but he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive tree and the fields yield no fruit, no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Verse 18 says, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. Let me pray. Lord, your word is so, so powerful. It's so awesome. It's so perfect. I could stop right there because anything... I say after this, Lord, is, is only trying to help us understand what your word says, but it's your word always. I don't ever want to put my mouth where your mouth is. I want you to put your mouth where mine is. Not just now while I'm holding a microphone, but all the time. I want my words to reflect you. I want people to see you when they see me. Um, glorify you when they see me. And especially now, having the responsibility of holding a microphone, Lord, I am a student. Uh, you're the teacher, and that's the way it'll always be. Uh, ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So, 1500s, King Henry VIII, probably the most notorious king, or at least in the modern, modern by modern, I mean the past several hundred years, uh, history of England, wanted a son for his throne. You may know the story. He wanted a son for his throne. He was psychotic about it almost. And he it wanted to divorce his first, first wife, who could not give him a son, and he wanted this other woman, Anne Boleyn, that he was crazy about and madly obsessed with and wanted to have a son by her. So he approached the Pope, because at that time the Pope uh, in Rome was the only authority to grant a divorce, 
trying to get a divorce from his first wife so he could have a second wife and then hopefully have a boy. But the Pope delayed and ultimately declined. He got furious about it. He got mad. Uh, and so he decided to split from the Catholic Church and declare his own church, the Church of England. And he made his right-hand man, Thomas Cranmer, uh, his archbishop, and he made himself the supreme ruler of the church. And then conveniently, Thomas Cranmer granted him the divorce. And he married swiftly in Berlin. But Anne had a girl. And then had miscarriages and miscarriages. So ultimately he had her executed so that he could move on to another one, uh, claiming that she had committed adultery. Whether that's true or not, nobody knows, but unlikely. All in all, he had six wives and multiple um, mistresses. He had two of those marriages annulled and two wives beheaded. This dude was a character. At the same time now, at the same time, Martin Luther has nailed the 99 disputes that he had with the church on the church door uh, in, Ger- in Germany and catapulted the world into this religious uh, revival in some ways and religious war in other ways. The people who opposed what the church was doing were called protesters. They became known as Protestants uh, and those who remained with the church became known as Catholics, and you you may know all this, but the basis of the battle was the Bible. It created wars. People were killing each other over this. Still do. Very familiar uh, where you are, Carl, in in Ireland is still a big issue. So for generations, the world is in this time of civil war or religious war, and the whole point is the Bible. The Catholics said that uneducated Christians should not attempt to read the Bible because they could misinterpret it or it could mislead them or they could read it wrong. So they just needed to trust and do what the church said. Uh, the Protestants said, if they don't know how to read, we'll teach them how to read and then we'll teach them the Bible. Or we will equip pastors who will teach them the Bible, whether they know how to read or, or not. And it caused this huge war. It went on and on and on. Meanwhile, back in England with King Henry, like the Catholics, he still opposed the, even though he had his own church, he still opposed the translation of the Bible into the English language or any language. He kind of held that same belief with the Catholics. In 1536, though, William Tyndall, an Englishman, attempted to translate it anyway into English. He got the whole New Testament done, but before he could get to the Old Testament, he was... Uh, executed. But that guy Cranmer, remember him that granted the divorce that was also the archbishop? He was a Protestant. He was in favor of the Protestant position and he and others in King Henry's court slowly worked Henry around to where Henry finally agreed and in 1539 he authorized the first full English translation of the Bible, borrowing from Tyndall's previous work, and finished the Bible, the whole thing in English for the first time. But he still believed that uneducated people couldn't read it. So you could only actually come read it if you had a good education. Uh, It was not until decades later in 1611 when King James had the first, King James I had the first for the people Bible translated into English. Uh, but, and I won't go into his story, you can read about King James. He was a piece of work as well. 
So, selfishness, greed, tradition, ignorance, you know, the church exploiting the rich, the church depriving the poor, splits, wars within itself, you know. But also translating the Bible into countless languages, carrying the Bible all over the world, opening schools to educate people, even in their own language, teaching, teaching them how to live and how to do things, how to communicate, how to work together, opening hospitals to care for people, all giving them God's word and teaching them how to use it and give it to others. But also on the shoulders of martyrs to get it accomplished. So why am I pointing all this out? Well, it helps us understand why people ask questions like, what are you doing, God? Like, how do you tolerate this? Why do you tolerate this? Why do you allow it? When are you going to end it? And it makes our doubt come alive, too, a little bit. If we're honest, our faith gets challenged, too. And so here's your point to remember. It's on your sheet. It's back there. If we can trust God is good and has a plan, then we can praise him with joy, knowing he's worthy of it in all situations. In all situations. Much like church history, our lives might be full of turmoil here, but the question is, what might God be accomplishing through our lives? What might God be accomplishing through our lives? So who's Habakkuk? We're not doing the whole book, so don't freak out. Um, But who's Habakkuk? Well, he lived around the mid-600s. Remember, we've been following time along, 600s B.C. He was at the same time period as Jeremiah, as Ezekiel, as Nahum, as Daniel, as Obadiah. He was in there with a lot of other prophets. Uh, Again, we're not looking at all of them, but we've looked at some of them. At his time, Assyria had already come and conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and destroyed it in 722 B.C., completely destroyed it. And now Babylon is conquering Assyria. In 612, Babylon conquered Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and took over Assyria. But God is saying, there's going to be more. God used Assyria to destroy or to judge or to punish the northern kingdom of Israel. Now he's going to use Babylon to do the same to the southern kingdom, to Jerusalem, to Judah. He's going to use Babylon to punish Judah. In fact, history tells us in 605 B.C. that happened. 605 B.C., Babylon came on the first of three sieges of Jerusalem, and by 586 B.C. had annihilated the city, the temple, everything to the ground. But here Habakkuk is seeing this ahead of time, and he's struggling to understand. Struggling to understand. So look at verse 1 of chapter 1. I'm just skimming through just a couple of things here. Chapter 1. Verse 1, it says the oracle, or that's the word burden. Remember we talked about the burden of the Lord about three or four weeks ago. We were talking about the burden of God. Well, this is one of those things. It says oracle. The word means burden. Same thing. The burden that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So it's something that he saw that burdened his heart really bad. And we know what it was. It was Babylon coming to destroy Israel for their sin. But it was also all the sin and filth that's going on in Israel. All of it. Is driving him crazy. And when I say Israel, I'm referring to the southern kingdom, Judah, because the northern kingdom has already been gone. So Habakkuk here reads a little bit different than the other guys. Remember these other guys we looked at, you had this long history of them, but here we don't. 
And much of this is a conversation between Habakkuk and God. And we're going to look at the first few verses, uh, the last few verses, but let's fly over so we get a little context. So here's how, here's what Habakkuk says in verse 2 of chapter 1. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you won't hear? Man, if I just stop right there, I guarantee you, if you're honest, there's not a person in this room that hadn't said that. Maybe you're saying it now. I don't know. How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry violence. There, there's crime all around me. There's violence everywhere. How long am I going to cry about this? I'm sick of seeing it. And you won't save. Like, you won't stop it. Why do you make me see iniquity? In other words, you made me care. And in front of me everywhere is sin. Just, I see sin everywhere. And I'm, why are you making me see it? And why do you idly look at wrong? Now, he's not talking about Babylon here, guys. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about Judah. He's talking about Jerusalem. He's talking about his people and the, the sickness and the destruction. Violence are before me in my face. Strife and contention, they just keep going up and up. As I said, Israel's gone, but Judah and Jerusalem are still there. That's where he is. But their kings are going from worse to worse to worse, you can read this in your own time, until they come to Manasseh, who is the king that is so horrible that he's sacrificing children, literally. Uh, and, and the wickedness gets so horrific. And then God brings in this guy Josiah as king. And Josiah causes all these reforms and turns the nation around for just a minute. But then when Josiah is gone, they go right back. Full throttle, even faster, and they go from worse to worse to horrible. And that explains a little bit why Habakkuk is so frustrated. Why does this keep happening? Why is he king now, God? Why is he king now? How come he's in charge? You know, just frustrated. Why, God, why aren't you doing something about this? God's response is in verse 5. Look at the nation's. Take a look, see, wonder and be astounded. Look around and be prepared to be have your mind blown. I'm doing a work in your days that you'd not believe if I told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Chaldeans, that's the people of Babylon. So he's saying I'm raising up Babylon, the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty or quickly moving nation who marches through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings that are not their own. God says, I'm going to deal with Judah. I got this. I'm going to deal with Judah. Here's how. I'm bringing Babylon. I'm bringing Babylon. Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 wait, 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 what? What? How can you use them? That don't even make any sense, God. They're filthy. They're sinners. They're the worst of sinners. Like, how could you use them? The term Babylon is synonymous with sin. Like, and here's his response. Look in verse 12. Habakkuk says, are, are you not eternal, O Lord, my God? My whole, you can almost see this in parentheses, my holy one. Aren't you holy? We're not going to die. What? What? Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, them as judgment. And you, O rock, have established them for your reproof. You who are Pure of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. First of all, he's getting he's exaggerating here a little bit because he's frustrated. Because can God look at wrong? Of course he can. You better hope he does, or else he's not looking at you or me or any of us, right? All right. So he says, "Why do you idly look at traitors? 
and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. In other words, he's saying, you're going to bring these sinner, wicked people, Babylon, and you're going to ignore their sin. And you're going to bring them in to judge your own people who, yeah, they got sins too, but they're not as bad as them. But really they are. And God's response is in chapter 2, and I'm, I'm skipping quickly. In chapter 2, God responds with this list of woes for Judah. I'm not going to read them all, but in verse 2, the Lord answered me. Write the vision. In other words, get your pen out. So far, it's been a conversation. Get your pen out. Write this down. Make it plain on tablets so he may run. Who reads it? In other words, write it down. Make it very plain. Put it where people can see it so when they see it, they will get out. Meaning it's coming. Like it or not. Prepare to run. Verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what's not his own. Verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink, get drunk. And a final one, in verse 18, we'll pick it up there. He says, what prophet, God speaking, what prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? And it's made by man. It's a metal image. It's a, a teacher of lies. It can't say anything. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes a speechless thing. Verse 19, so woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? There's idols everywhere. There are idols everywhere. And we can say, well, our wallet, our money, you know, all those. I know all that. But there's literal idols all over the place. Um, Particularly uh, here. I see them in a lot of spots. He's saying, can they speak? Can they talk? They're, They're made by man. Behold, it's overlaid with gold and silver. You make it look real pretty, but there's no breath at all. But, verse 20, but the Lord, that's the proper name, God, Jehovah, Yahweh. The Lord is in his holy temple. What that means is he is alive. He is on the throne. He is in his place of worship. He is active. And he says, let all the earth keep silent before him. Worship him in a sense. Habakkuk's response now to that is a prayer. For the people to share. Because Habakkuk really got nothing to say after that. Except okay well. I'm going to hit my knees now. You know. And so in chapter 3. Habakkuk carries on in a prayer. In verse 1 he says. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. According to the Shigenot. That's a tune. So he set this to music. So if you knew what the Shigenot sound like. We don't. But if you knew what it sounded like. Then you would sing this along to that tune. Alright. So the same kind of thing. He wrote it for people to sing it. As praise and as memory, verse 2. Oh, Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. He's saying, I've heard what you did. I know know the stories, how you brought people out of bondage. I know the stories, how you parted the Red Sea. I know the stories, how you brought food from heaven when they were starving. I know all those things. I know how you surrounded, how you brought down Jericho with a shout. I know how you did all these things. And it I fear you. In the midst of the years, he says, revive it, your work. Do it again now. In the midst of the years, these years, right now, make it known. In wrath, okay, I know you're mad, but in wrath, be remember mercy. Be merciful. Can God 
used Babylon? Is he wrong to do that? Verse 16, chapter 3. Habakkuk says, I hear and my body trembles. I hear what you're saying. It is making me shake. My lips are quivering at the sound. Rottenness enter my, my bones. It makes me sick inside. My legs tremble beneath me. I'm, I'm getting weak in the knees thinking about this. But I'll wait for the day of trouble to come on the people who invade us as well. So he's saying, but I'll trust that you're going to deal with them righteously too, God. And he does. Can God use Babylon? Jeremiah 27, 6. You can make a note of it. You don't have to go there. It'll be on the board, I think. But it says... God speaking to Jeremiah, he says, I've given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. What does he say? My servant. And I have given him also the beasts of the field to serve him. Meaning he is serving the purposes of God. Not meaning he's a holy, righteous king. It means he's serving the purposes of God, whether he knows it or not. And ultimately, the Bible tells us that God tells them, you'll face judgment too. And they do. They're conquered. By Persia. Um, So, God, what are you doing here? Like, how? Why? When? Is this all just about punishment? No, he's also working a plan. I love chapter 2 of Habakkuk. Look at verse 14. He says this. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What an awesome statement. Guess how that's going to happen. Babylon is a world empire, and they are going to conquer Israel and Judah, and they're going to scatter them and exile them and bring them into their empire. And now the knowledge of God will be able to spread to the whole world through Babylonian captivity, really. That, that should strengthen your faith. Hey, your faith, I mean, trust God's got a plan. Like, okay, there's a plan in this. It's not just I'm going to spank you. Like there's a plan. It doesn't give you answers at the moment, but it can give you a reason to praise him, right? It might even give you a reason to have some joy. Like, okay, this is going to be rough, but man, what are you doing? It could be, whatever you're doing, I know it's going to be big. Look at verse 17 of chapter 3. This is where we're going to finish up. Where we started, we'll finish. Verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines. That means there's no sweets. There's no wine. There's no pleasures. The produce of the olive fail. Olive oil was for flavor, for cooking, for trade, for profit. That be gone. The fields yield no food. That's not a hard one to understand. There is no crops. There's nothing to eat. The flock be cut off from the fold. There's no milk. There's no meat. No fabric. And there be no herd in the stalls. No meat. No, no, no animals to work. The ground and all those kind of things. Though all that happens, man, yet I will rejoice. It's not about faith when God doesn't make sense. It's about faith when things are definitely bad. It's about faith when things are about as bad as they can get. Spurgeon, a famous pastor, preacher, wrote, A faith that does without anything. A faith that can take nothing 
and be content with it because it finds everything in God. Faith even under the worst conceivable conditions. Habakkuk doesn't just say, I'm going to get through it. I'm going to survive. I'm going to get through it. He says what seems impossible. Verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. You, you need to notice something. That's not, thank you, Holy Spirit, for filling me with joy in spite of my horrible conditions. That's not, hey, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to just uh, wait till God makes me feel better. That's a decision. I will. It's just saying I'm going to. I don't feel like it. I don't know how. I know. That's, I'm not saying he did. I'm just saying he chose to. So there's a choice. He just said, I'm going to rejoice. I'm going to take joy. And he doesn't say anything about the situation. He's not taking joy in the situation. doesn't say that, does it? What is he taking joy in? God. I rejoice in the Lord. I take joy in God. Situation might be horrible, but I, I can I can love him. I can take joy in him. I can celebrate him. Why? Because he tells you why. Because he saved me. The God of my salvation. He saved me. Not from the situation. He saved me from sin. He saved me from death. He saved me. He saved my soul. He didn't get me out of pain, but he saved my soul. Look at verse 19. God the Lord. Last one here. God the Lord is my strength. Already is. Not God, come be my strength. Not God, will you strengthen me? He already is. If God doesn't need to strengthen you. You need to recognize that he's your strength. He's saying, strength, he's my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. Think about, don't think about our deers running through the woods. It's more like a ram or a mountain goat that would hop up because he said he makes me tread on high places. These guys that leap higher and higher and higher from the hell, so to speak, that's below or whatever. If you go over to the Phoenix Zoo, they got a hill over there with these mountain goats on it. It's the craziest thing to watch. They run straight up the side of that thing with hoofs, which just freaks me out. I don't understand that. But right up the side of that thing, almost like a flop, they just they'll go straight up that cliff. And that's what he's saying, that God... Doesn't say God will do that for me. Doesn't say God makes it possible for me to do that. What does it say? He makes me do that. Not I know I can get through this. Not I know it will work out. Not I can handle it. Knowing Him changes everything. He makes me rise. Not I know something you don't know. It's I know someone you need to know. You know, he, he makes me right. Over 600 years later, I think Paul was thinking about that when he wrote this in Philippians 4.11. And we talked through this in the past, so you, ought to, and you probably know it well anyway. Paul said, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. He's in prison, house arrest at the time, so let's take that into consideration. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, keeping in mind this man was shipwrecked, uh, uh, go, go straight down the list, in chains, ultimately beheaded. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Either which way, why, how, what, what's the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through him or in him, talking of Christ, who strengthens me. Same exact thing. I can get through all of these things 
through Christ who strengthens me is the same thing that Habakkuk is saying, knowing that Babylon is coming to judge his nation. Consider another one that's often quoted, Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice he didn't say anything about rescue. doesn't say anything about getting out of anything there. He just says whatever it is you may go through, he works it towards good. And in fact, you'll see when we get to Daniel, even the king of Babylon repents and gives his life to the Lord and turns the whole nation to focus on serving the God of Israel. Let me close with the key verse from Habakkuk, the key one. Quoted three times in the New Testament, in Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. It's in chapter 2, verse 4. Flip back there. Chapter 2, verse 4, the back half of the verse says, But the righteous shall live by faith. Faith is not a one-time act, guys. It's a way of life. It's not saying I put my faith in the Lord and I'm cool. It's I, right now, I put my faith in the Lord. When I walk out that door, I'm putting my faith in the Lord. As I get in the car and start it, I'm putting my faith in the Lord. As I drive home, I'm put, my, my faith is in the Lord. It's a, it's a way of life. First John 5, 4 says this. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. And this, the victory, this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Trusting God is nothing, guys, if it's never challenged. And I'm not trying to say we should hope for challenges, but I'm saying it doesn't say a whole lot to trust. If, if, if you married the only woman on earth, that's cool, but that's not quite the same as having options and choosing the one. You know what I mean? Uh, trusting God if it's never challenged It's not saying a whole lot. Faith is trusting him in each and every moment, every day, year after year, no matter how confusing, no matter how frustrating the circumstances get, or how great they are, or how perfect they are. What's the ultimate example of that, by the way? The cross. Think about the struggle, the disciples. Can you imagine the disciples? It's, it's, it's Passover, and y'all know about Passover because we do it every time we do the Lord's Supper. It, it's Passover. It's a celebration. It's a, it's a great, wonderful, incredible time. And we're with the Messiah who's here among us. Finally, God is here. He's going to bring in his kingdom. Everything is great. We're on this great big high. And then all of a sudden, he goes to a cross, naked, bleeding to death, embarrassed, humiliated. Everybody's laughing. Spitting at him? What kind of God would tolerate all of that? How would God use those kind of people to do that to his own kid? To himself? You know? The how, Lord? Why? When? Can you imagine those days in between his death? What they were thinking while they were hiding? Oh, yeah, but then... Then comes that morning, right? Then comes that morning. And suddenly he's alive. The impossible has happened. Despite Roman guards guarding the tomb, despite the tomb being sealed, it's open. Despite seeing him murdered to death in the most horrific way possible, they see him and he's alive. And they touch him and he's got skin and he's got bones. You know? 
The fact is, the moments come and go, right? The moments come and go. But if our faith is in him, we can know he's always got a plan. He's always doing something here that's working towards his good. And the fact is, if we can know that, we can know that salvation is, is ours. The plan is salvation. If we trust that he's got a plan, he's provided salvation for us. If he's provided salvation for us, he loves us. You know, it's not cheap. Cost him everything. Cost him his son. Died on that cross, it was horrible. But for us, it's free. It's accessed by faith. It begins with repentance. You guys know this, but it's, it, it begins with repentance. It begins with saying, I admit who I am. I know who I am. Can you do that? Can you say, I admit who I am? I, I, I am a sinner. I know it. Can you admit that? Can you believe in him and who he is? I, I, I can't explain everything about you, God, but I believe, Jesus, you are who you say you are. And then can I trust can you, can you trust that what he did was enough? Like it's never going to be good. Nothing I can do is good enough. It's never going to be. But I can trust that what you did is good enough. If you can, then tell him. You don't need a moment. Just tell him. In your own words, pray or, or, or say it to him however you want to say it. We're going to do another song and uh, close up. And if you guys will stand up with me, um, we'll do that. And uh, let, me, let me end with this. Job thirteen fifteen. You probably know this, one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But Job says, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. But I'll argue my ways to his face. I love that in the back of it. Even if he kills me, I'm going to trust him only. I'm going to love him and trust him only. But I'll argue my ways to his face. Habakkuk and Job did the same thing and they did it well. They said, I don't care how confusing it is, but I'm going to God with it. I'm frustrated about this. God, I'm coming to you with it. And they sat down with God and they wrestled with the word of God and what God had to say. And they wrestled, but they left trusting him, praising him, full of joy from having spent time with him and accepting whatever comes. You know, that would change our game. I can promise you it would change our faith if that's the way we allow God to use us. Lord, I love you. Thank you for your word. Again, it's awesome. I pray, Father, that you're glorified by our lives help our faith to be strong i know that it seems easy to just read words and things are really falling apart around you or around me or whoever it is lord i i I know it's a struggle sometimes and but god help us to be able to find that faith that habakkuk had to come to you to wrestle you with you on it to find ourselves in prayer and lord to be encouraged and full of joy that that you Guide our steps, Lord, and that we can trust you, that there is a plan. It might be bigger than us. It might not come to, it might not be visible until we're gone, but there is a plan that you're working through whatever it is that's going on, Lord. We love you. Help us trust you. In Christ's name, amen.